So on this episode, we wanted to give a trigger warning because we just we all describe our traumas and mental health issues, and there's specific language surrounding suicidal thoughts, sexual assault, and miscarriages. Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist political podcast reminding you that men killed Rosa and we still haven't forgiven them. Today, we will never forgive. <laughs> today we have Kellen, Lindsay, and Laura. Today we're talking about mental health and capitalism. Um, at another episode down the road, we're going to have a talk with actual mental health professionals and the links they've found between mental health and capitalism. But today we're mostly talking about our own experiences. For a little bit of background, we read an article by Oliver James, author of the book, The Selfish Capitalist, Origins of Affluenza. In this article, he writes about the prevalence of mental health um, issues in what he calls, quote unquote, selfish capitalist nations. Generally, the selfish capitalists are English-speaking nations, such as the United States, Canada, Australia, Britain, and other European nations tend to be, quote-unquote, unselfish capitalist nations. While as socialists, we can obviously argue these terms, he's generally describing the amount of social safety nets available to the general public, and the amount of social service services are lowest in shocker the united states and generally lower in all english-speaking wealthy nations in fact he cites that quote english-speaking nations which tend to be one in the same are twice as likely to suffer mental illness that as those from mainland western europe which is largely the unselfish capitalist in its political economy twice as likely this is some bullshit Oliver James takes the bold argument that selfish capitalism, much more than genes, is extremely bad for your mental health. He absolutely understands that biology plays a big role. However, he says that what does the damage is the combination of inequality with widespread relative materialism of affluenza, placing a high value on money, possessions, and appearances and fame when you already have enough income to meet your fundamental psychological needs but he says the real clincher that does the most damage is the idea of meritocracy or the american dream or anything can anyone can do anything if you work hard enough this essentially comes down to the idea that when you inevitably aren't able to make the american dream work for you you blame yourself instead of the social structures that are in place inhibiting you from doing what you want and for insisting that you can do whatever you want at the same time This internalized self-deprecation becomes so toxic that you actually end up inadvertently amplifying the selfish capitalist system. By feeling like you're not good enough and being so eager to please, we societally don't push back on low wages, high expectations, and terrible bosses. This is not to say that we are to blame for the way we are taken advantage of, because that would be some sort of victim-blaming bullshit, but having an awareness about how this predatory capitalist system affects our mental health is absolutely crucial. Yeah, for sure. One of the things, I don't know, my biggest criticisms of his piece is <laughs> that he tends to approach mental illness within capitalism from kind of a, well, the perspective of affluenza. Like his whole idea is essentially that capitalism causes mental illness because people have more than they need and they still want more, um, which I think is bullshit because uh, there are still so many people who still don't have what they need. And so I think that more so than, you know, people constantly being dissatisfied with having more than enough, a big problem, you know, a big cause of mental illness within capitalism is um, people living with, you know, a constant state of artificial scarcity and um, hyper-individualism. And I think that combination is pretty psychologically devastating. Because I know that historically when people have not had enough 
they've bonded together as a society. They, they've come together to fulfill their needs communally. But when that scarcity is artificial and, you know, I could not be able to afford my light bill and I can't, you know, wouldn't be able to afford groceries and my neighbor could buy their second car and like have, mm. you know, another house elsewhere. There mm. is, there isn't that sense that, you know, that sense of community and that sense of caring for one another within a communal sense. So, of course, I think that's kind of how hyper-individualism fucks people up, especially because there is more than enough to go around. I think another thing is that, like, accepting charity is somehow seen as shameful. Mm. So. Totally. Yeah. So with the combination of those three factors, you know, hyper-individualism and artificial scarcity and shame at having needs that aren't met, you know, there's no way that those wouldn't result in, you know, psychological devastation. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the article that we're, t- we're talking about is like, it's a really good way to, to think about things and bring sort of capitalism into the equation when we're walking through mental illness. But I think I totally agree with um, both of y'all that affluenza is not the major issue. You know, like doing an article about maybe like posh British teenagers who are unfulfilled and like that makes them depressed because like all they do is like skip school to do designer drugs in Ibiza. Like that's an article, but it's not a universal. Um, that's so specific. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Yeah, that was my my teenage years. No, but seriously, like, I don't know. That was, that's, I think what we're talking about, about capitalism and the ways that, that our system exacerbates problems with mental health. A really fundamental issue is what Lindsay was talking about is, is the way that, you know, wealth and access to, to goods is hyper concentrated amongst a small number of people within a society um and granted you know competing with your neighbors i'm sure brings anxiety but i think more uh, you know a a greater source of anxiety is not having access to health care um or you know not knowing where your next rent check is going to come from and all of that is also a symptom of what this guy's calling selfish capitalism but it's not really what he's addressing when he's talking. So I don't know. I just, I think you guys did a much better job of analyzing the situation than he did, but maybe I'm biased. Yeah. Good analysis there. No, you did. (laughs) (laughs) No, you, you hang up first. So we're going to segue into kind of the, the solutions that communities can have that, that create, um, you know, uplifting spaces for people with anxiety or uplifting spaces for people with um, physical ailments. Um, And I know Hope had an amazing story about a cooperative health clinic. Yes. Something that's in progress on the south side of Chicago, but basically we have a coalition of people from different groups, which includes DSA, Black Lives Matter, um, and probably five or six other groups working in communities on the south side who have come together to try to develop an alternative to um, what used to be mental health clinics um, that were funded largely in Chicago by the city government that closed recently. And the idea is to really have them be run as cooperatives and uh, really be able to serve the communities in a way that's affordable and where community members have a stake in what the cooperative is doing. And we just did some tabling for this last weekend I thought it was so interesting that when we tried to explain the benefits to people, like, you know, we could offer you care, we can do, you know, we've got therapists who can offer prescriptions and things like that. And therapy, it was really hard to talk to people about that. The thing that had the most traction was being able to use the cooperative to help de-escalate police interactions with people dealing with the mental health crisis. And I think that kind of intervention is a really powerful way to start. Absolutely. It's so crucial also, especially because of the large amount of people who become incarcerated um, that do have a lot of mental health um, needs. I think there, you know, even in addition to something that's so structurally sound, like an actual cooperative clinic, 
I feel like there can be a lot of shared strength and people coming together who have similar axes of oppression under capitalism. For me, um, this podcast has been a big booster um, and almost like an anti-anxiety because I feel so supported by a group of women who struggle with a lot of the same things that I do. So I feel like there's these very specific ways in which community and social support networks make a big difference. And I think that capitalism, you know, the, the hyper individualization that Lindsay was talking about and like this, this really isolating um, society that we have to navigate is part of the problem and part of what, you know, creates these amplifying feedback loops, at least for me with anxiety of like, I feel alone and then like I don't have these these outlets or these um, people to support me um, until I do. And then it's clear that those things are so helpful. You know, they don't get rid of the actual chemical imbalances, obviously, but, you know, they really help with a lot of the behavioral parts. Oh, totally. So we're going to have our music break a little early um, in this episode um, because when we come back, we'll be sharing a lot of our own personal experiences. Get ready. (laughs) Brace yourselves. Enjoy the music while you can. things that I wanted to share is kind of how my relationship to my mom and between her upbringing and my upbringing and the differences between that have definitely um, amplified a lot of the mental health issues that I struggle with and it definitely surrounds capitalism. Um, My mom is one of six siblings and she grew up super poor in a suburb of Buffalo She literally shared a bed with her three sisters for most of her childhood. Um, After she graduated high school, she was able to go to a community college for two years. Um, She got an associate's degree, and she took a chance at starting her own business. 
it was at this time that I think um, she was able to because she was a woman starting a business and it was um, the late 80s, it was able like she was able to kind of take this off in a very specific way. Um, and it did take off. And she was one of the only women owned business in Buffalo this successful for for quite a while. And it was extremely successful. And she did much of this as a single mother because she and my dad divorced when I was seven. Um, she owned or she sold the business after owning it for 25 years and moved to Florida. Um, and here's the thing. I'm super proud of my mom, but she had a very lucky experience. And unfortunately, it's created in my mind this idea that I have to live up to this perfect um, meritocratic life. It unfortunately creates this narrative where she thinks that I'm actively pursuing low paying jobs that don't value how hard I work instead of recognizing that the system itself is flawed. And I feel like being in her shadow has absolutely amplified the ways in which this capitalist system has affected my mental health. I work literally all the time for less pay than I've ever received, which we'll get more into that next week. Mm. Um, <laughs> and I feel like I'm actually failing at life. Uh, even as a good socialist who understands the flaws in the system, when you have to ask for a loan from your partner, which in and of itself is a privileged thing to be able to do, or when you show up at food banks, it's super demoralizing. You feel like you must be doing something wrong to be in this scenario. And there's also a lot of anxiety that comes from not knowing if you're going to be able to afford rent or food or a gift for your brother's wedding, which is very relevant to my life right now. <laughs> Um, it's really intense. I only recently started going on medicine for anxiety and insomnia because a lack of sleep and almost constant panic attacks are a goddamn nightmare. And it's been combating all that's been coming up from these intensities and a history of abuse and child trauma more generally. But it comes with its own issues for me, like not being as accessible as a person to my partner because part of my general emotions are blunted and it's hard not like it's hard to not feel like there's a way to be a successful person in society but also just be a person within relationships and then just be a person just like a fucking human being in the world and feel like you can function in any way when there's so many pieces of the puzzle that you feel like you're combating at all times oh, I think it's really hard yeah, it's really hard to, like, I think, communicate to people who have worked, like, really, really hard, you know, like, worked their asses off and, like, come from very little and succeeded. Like, you you don't want to say, like, this wasn't you because, like, on, you know, like, people, there are people who do work really, really hard and, like, end up being, you know very successful or you know doing much better at least than they they you might have predicted given their circumstances and just totally. you know to say to somebody well that wasn't you like that's harsh and nobody wants to hear that um and I think that's a struggle that that you know we face on the left but it's not like you know you didn't succeed, like, you're not good, this was all handed to you, because that's obviously not the case, especially, you know, being a woman, like, achieving that kind of stuff that your mom did, I'm sure was really, really hard. Um, totally. But also being, like, a lot of luck also came, you know, your way to make that happen, Absolutely. and there's so many people who worked so hard, like you, you know, every day of mm -hmm. your life, and it doesn't, doesn't lead to like monetary success or you know a, a, a business that's flourishing um and to say that that's not a failure but that the you know the system is set up to only let so many people succeed I think that's a hard message for people who have been upwardly mobile um to hear and and it's I mean just you know I don't know I don't even yeah no, it's really intense. Yeah, I think a lot of people who have kind of pulled themselves up by their bootstraps really like to think that they got where they are because of their own hard work. Like that mm. it feels good to believe that. And it it's it also kind of feels like a loss if people are denying that to them. But they don't realize that 
by saying that anyone can get where they are by working as hard as they did, they're, you know, they're negating the fact that other people are working just as hard or harder and the system's just stacked against them and they don't have, you know, they don't have the same luck to find that same amount of success. Um, Absolutely. I think psychologically, it's probably pretty hard to comfortably enjoy your largesse while your neighbors are starving, unless you're able to really convince yourself that you deserve wh- what you have. Yeah. Ooh. Absolutely. True. That's super true. That's such a good point. It, I think I think for me, like the layer is also like, I love my mom. Like she's an awesome person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I like want to be able to connect with her. But this is such a huge a huge um, source of anxiety for me of like constantly feeling like a disappointment and a failure. Um, And so it's, it's definitely a really intense shadow to live under. Well, you haven't let me down. (laughs) (laughs) And I also think talking openly and being vulnerable about the things that we're struggling with helps other people and will eventually make things much better for a greater number of people. Because I don't honestly know that many people who really feel like they're successful, like they're, you know, it's particularly mm-hmm. women, but really anyone. Um, so being able to talk honestly about where we feel like we're falling short and think critically about what success actually means or looks like, I think is really helpful. Definitely. Absolutely. All right. We ready to move on? I don't want to stop talking about you, Laura, no, you, unless you're, let, you feel fully processed. <laughs> Let's talk about you. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for this like inadvertent therapy session, y'all. Please still pay us on Patreon. <laughs> that should be a model. Yeah. Get paid. Yeah. Yep. For exactly. your therapy sessions. Yeah, I'm the one being vulnerable here. Come yeah. on. <laughs> Fork up some cash. This is work on our part. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So, um, I guess my struggle with mental illness, it's. It goes back my entire life. Like, I definitely have a serotonin imbalance. Um, I've got, I've had migraines since I was a child. Not, like, frequently, but I've, you know, looked it up and apparently that's connected to serotonin. Um, I remember having panic attacks as a child. Um, I was actually misdiagnosed with asthma when I was a kid because whenever I get panic attacks, I just feel like I can't breathe. Um, and I just, like, I, my lungs just... Like, I can't fill my lungs all the way up. And it feels awful. And I was prescribed an inhaler, which was, like, I think it was, I mean, it was albuterol, which I think is a steroid. Um, Steroids aren't good Mm -hmm. for anxiety. So it never really (laughs) helped. Um, It's a really bad combination. Yeah, it sucked. (laughs) Like, it never really helped with with my breathing problems. And um, when I was an adult and finally in therapy... And, you know, seeking help for mental illness, my doctor's like, yeah, that sounds like anxiety. Um, And I realized that I'd been living my entire life with anxiety, um, just treated as something else or mistreated as something else. Um, And I've also had, you know, I remember having depressive episodes in my teen years, if not earlier. Um, I've also been hospitalized for depression twice. Um, The first time was outpatient and the second time was inpatient. Um, so the first time was probably two months after I graduated college. I was feeling pretty directionless. Um, and the job that I was working was, it was really rough. I was working 50 to 55 hours per week. It was about 45 minutes away from my house. So I had to get up early, um, you know, left my house at six in the morning um, 6.30 at the latest, got home probably like 7 at night. So my work weeks were basically, I mean, my entire life when I held that job was waking up, getting ready for work, working, getting home, winding down from work. And then the weekends were like the brief periods when I was trying to recover from working. After, you know, 10 months of that job, I finally quit, but it was about two months in that I had, I had a breakdown. I was, um, just, um, yeah, had some pretty prolonged periods of suicidal ideation. And, uh, one day I was just like, I am either going to kill myself or I'm going to get help today. 
And so I decided to call um, 911 and ask what the hell I was supposed to do. And, you know, wound up being escorted by police, which was horrifying, um, to the hospital. Um, They told me that I could either be in inpatient treatment or outpatient treatment. My mom said that it would be on my permanent record, like that's some kind of real thing, if I got got committed to inpatient. So she's like, she's going to do outpatient. So I did outpatient, and that was for a full month. Um, I could not work for that entire month. And the only reason I was able to afford it, like the only reason it didn't stress me out being out of work that long was because I was still living with my parents at the time. Um, A couple of years later, um, I was trying to come off of my uh, SSRI, my selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, um, my antidepressant. It wasn't working anymore. And I talked with my psychiatrist about doing that because you're not supposed to do it without, you know, psychiatric supervision and like the withdrawals they're technically called it's technically serotonin syndrome um i don't think that it's called a withdrawal but it basically is like it's just a period where your serotonin levels are kind of just deeply fucked up they're just completely unstable um and i was having a really bad day and i couldn't reach my psychiatrist and I remembered from the first time that I was hospitalized that they said this other hospital had a psychiatrist on staff. Um, and so I thought, I can go talk to them. Um, apparently, they weren't working when I went in. And the people I wound up talking to tried to, they, they asked me if I'd be willing to do outpatient again, but I had just started a job um, a month before. No, less than a month before. And I was the primary breadwinner in my family. Um, We had just rented a house. Um, My husband and I had just rented a new house and I couldn't afford to spend another month out of work. Just could not afford it. And the thought of taking time off work for my mental health was distressing. Like Mm. as distressed as I was because of, you know, the actual chemical element of my mental illness (laughs) the thought of having to take time off work and the financial anxiety that would come with that was just too much. And so I said, no, I wouldn't be willing to do inpatient or excuse me. I wouldn't be willing to do outpatient. They didn't tell me that the alternative to refusing outpatient was civil commitment. Um, so they committed me. I was, um, so fucked up. Yeah, it was awful. It was, the first time I've ever, yeah, the only time I've ever been in the back of a cop car, they had to handcuff me. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. <laughs> it was deeply traumatizing. Um, and and I was, like, I wasn't doing anything. I just, it's just procedure. If you're in the back of a cop car, they have to handcuff you. Jeez. Um, so, uh, yeah, I was taken to the hospital I wasn't given the opportunity to talk to the psychiatrist at the ER. Um, the next day when I was able to talk to a psychiatrist at the facility, she said, I think they've like miscategorized you. I don't know if you need to be here. I'll check back with you on Monday because it was a Thursday night when I got checked in. I didn't see the psychiatrist until Friday and she didn't work the weekends. So I was in for five days and at the facility where they sent me, they don't even have, like, one-on-one therapists. Like, it's all group therapy, and that's all I oh, needed. No. Like, I just, I went to the ER because I needed someone to talk me through a really bad day. Oh. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I have, yeah, I have, uh, I had PTSD before that, but talking with my therapist after I've been out, um, she's like, yeah, it sounds like you have some, you know, PTSD symptoms from you know, from your hospitalization as well. So I, I can barely go see a doctor anymore without having a panic attack. Like it takes, you know, a whole lot of will for me to even get myself into a doctor's office anymore because I'm afraid that I won't be able to leave. Mm. Um, and it's, yeah, just really bad experiences. Um, after I was released Probably within a couple months, I did finally get off of my SSRIs. They tried to put me on another one while I was at the hospital, and I stayed on it for about a month, and then I thought, 
this isn't working. Like this class of drug just doesn't work for me. Um, and what it does, it, it balances your serotonin level. But I found in a lot of places that it balanced it at a level that was way too low. Um, so it kept me in depressive episodes longer. And mm. by just making behavioral changes and dietary changes and like, you know, going extended periods without drinking if I find that I'm becoming depressed. My serot- like I'm able to kind of find more balance with my serotonin levels off medication. Um, but the system isn't really set up to help people. <laughs> of course not. Get it's balanced super off fucked medication. Up. Yeah, it's just oh, deeply fucked up. I was anyway. thinking about that as you we were planning this episode, actually, just about how so much of mental health care when we talk about it is pharmaceutical and you know it's pretty much just Mm -hmm. presented as talk therapy and pharmaceutical devoid of all of the other myriad lifestyle changes that can help you feel better including having free time vacation you know exercise like there's all these things that we know have tremendous impact totally it makes me think of um the documentary where to invade next by Michael Moore. And he goes to a bunch of different countries and, um, most of them have guaranteed, like, I think it was Italy that has a guaranteed, you have to take six weeks of vacation, um, per year. And there's also like, if, if your boss thinks that you look stressed out, they send you to, a spa where you have access to therapy um, and massages and a bunch of other stuff because and then they were talking he was talking to the bosses like but doesn't this like detract from your profit you know he was kind of being a shyster because he doesn't give a shit about that but <laughs> he was saying like doesn't this care about your profit and, he, and they were like it is the perfect thing for our profit because we Having a strong and healthy um, labor force and having we're able to a hire more people because they go on vacation and B they're able to stay with us for longer. And we have a lot of commitment like for lifetimes through our companies. And these are fucking for profit companies. So like obviously I'm not super down, but like pathway to socialism. I'm down. (laughs) Like (laughs) guys, I'm moving to Italy. (laughs) Yeah. Like. And (laughs) yeah, I, all I'm saying is like, it's, there's first of all, no reason for anyone ever to be working a 50 to 55 hour work week, which I could say that probably all of us are doing at this point Mm -hmm. or like have done. And it's super fucked up. Like a 40 hour work week is too much, you know, like that. There is no reason for that. And, and there's no reason for capital to consume this much of our fucking life where We don't have the time to connect with people. We don't have the time to connect with ourselves. We don't have the time to have leisure activities, which like, I don't know, people, people, I feel like capitalists always give the argument of like, well, when it was a hunter and gather society, there was no time for blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, but you were fucking outside, like doing physical activity, which amplifies your serotonin levels and you were like in a community setting the whole fucking time so shut but not to mention also there wasn't like <laughs> a falsely engineered scarcity either um so but also not there's like not to mention issue. that like the anxiety that you would have had might have been put to good use if you were afraid a bear was gonna eat you every day like we have all of these parts of our brain that used to be right. useful and now we have to find ways to kind of like deal with them or you know work with them and i i just think that's a totally unfair and ridiculous comparison yeah absolutely absolutely. oh my gosh oh so on the on the subject of um unbalanced chemical stuff going on in your brain um i like totally feel that um i definitely have uh, not, I mean, I was going to say like Lindsay, but like Lindsay in a different yeah. <laughs> way. I've, I've been on SSRIs as well, but my primary issue is, is anxiety, um, or like OCD mixed with anxiety. Um, mm-hmm. and I know not everybody has like experience with this stuff. So I thought it might be helpful to like kind of explain 
what it's like inside my brain and like what that what it means to have this going on and obviously I only know you know my own experience so I don't know what it's like to not have this um but I'll do my best to explain so like so I have OCD been diagnosed with OCD um it's not like mine is not like on the MTV uh true life episodes um that I know were on like back in the day when we were (laughs) teens um and true life yeah (laughs) um mine mine isn't I don't have compulsions like so OCD C is the the compulsions um I don't have compulsions or I have a few but they're pretty minor like I have a ritual that I have to do before I uh, the plane that I'm on takes off for example or I will be incredibly anxious but for me it's the O the obsessive and it's obsessive thoughts um and what that means is I like to think of it as like it's like my brain being like a blender um or like like a black hole one of the two so like if you're familiar with the theory behind black holes you know it's like as as you approach the inside I'm making a gesture with my hand this is not helpful for a podcast Uh, (laughs) as you approach like the inside of the black hole as you kind of like go over the side um I guess time like slows down but in a blender (laughs) it speeds up right like like Mm -hmm. the stuff on at the top that's not moving close to the the blades like it's slow slower and then down at the blades it's like that's where the stuff's moving the fastest right and so my brain and like the OCD what it does is it takes a thought that kind of like comes up at the surface and it sucks it down into like the bottom part of the blender and it just goes faster and faster um oh yeah yeah (laughs) and it becomes like more and more out of control is like kind of how I I would explain it um And so having this, like, this natural sort of amplification machine within my brain that's OCD doesn't, doesn't partner super well with anxiety, um, as you might imagine. Uh, I think everybody has anxieties, obviously, um, but putting, putting, like, anxiety into the accelerator of compulsive thinking is a total recipe for a panic attack. Um, and for me, again, I just think it's helpful to maybe like illustrate what that's like for people who don't or haven't experienced these things or maybe don't realize that they've experienced them. But like, like Lindsay, I have a lot of trouble breathing, so it feels like I can only take very shallow breaths. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, a lot of times, so like um, some of my coping mechanisms are like, I like sniff my hair for whatever reason, like that's soothing or I'll breathe through my hands. Um, but I feel like I can't breathe very well. Um, and then I get nauseous and then sometimes if it's really great, I'll just start like crying and I won't be able to stop crying. Um, it's truly beautiful. Uh, (laughs) it's not, it's awful. Um, and like, there's different there's different things that can like spur it. So some of the the worst ones that I've ever had have been totally disconnected, like from my life. They are like images that I won't be able to get out of my head. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like one of them was that I saw. So it's like my I, I have these are really vivid memories, but like my sophomore year of college. Um, and this is when other, usually other stuff is going on in my life that's, like, incredibly anxiety-provoking, but then I get fixated on this other stuff. Like, I saw an image of a man jumping out of a building, um, that was on fire, uh, my sophomore year of college, and I couldn't get the image out of my head. Like, I don't, I don't even know how to explain it, but it was, like... It's really intense. All I could think about was this man and how he felt in the air and whether he had a family and whether his family had seen the picture and you know what they thought about it and you know how long did the the, like distance between the top of the building and the ground feel to him was he conscious was he thinking about them like were they happy that he had jumped and like not burned alive just like it's um you know and then like what was did he have a wife what was it like for her to plan the funeral does he have kids how would they live without their dad like was he a good dad was he a shitty dad like I hope he was a good dad but if he was a good dad then like those kids lives like how will they ever be the same and this just on repeat for literally hours to the point where like 
I am consumed in like the imagined the just like the imagined loss of someone I don't know and like that that doesn't make sense you know like that's that that shouldn't happen um but it like it took over my brain and another one was I an image of a man who had been um burned alive um in and this is this is sort of like I mean it's alongside the stuff that I work on but in um like a lynching episode in in the south and the image of it like, I know what you're talking about I know that image the, it's, that it's 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 terrifying and the idea of of like humans doing that to each other mm. um and the image of a person's anyway I don't you know that's not my trauma so I I it's I don't it's complicated because I don't own it, you know, like that's not, that didn't happen to me. That's almost, I mean, almost assuredly never going to happen to me, but like having this visceral picture in your head and not being able to move it and like the weight of this bearing down on you and not being able to breathe and all like, no matter what you do, that's all you can see. I don't know how else, I mean, I don't know how to explain it, but it's terrifying. Um, and so I actually have some of that too. So like I <laughs> totally feel like I am right there with you and I'm so sorry. No, so I mean sorry. the good thing so so I just kind of like say I'm saying all of this because like again I don't know I don't know that like everybody listening has experienced this or they've experienced things that are similar but like not the same and like anyway that's kind of that's like what it's some of it at least is like for me. Those are and I think those things those are like my that's my, like, brain not having its chemicals right, you know? Totally. Um, and for me, like, meds have been super helpful. Like, for me to be, like, functioning and not, honestly, like, just a mess every day, like, the, I, I like to think of it as, like, it, like, builds a wall in my brain or, like, like a dam kind of thing. Um, and there's this, like, constant, like, there's an ocean outside of this dam of like the terrifying shit that can happen in the world like that anybody I love can die at any time that used to consume me that would that's all that I would think about like all the time (laughs) and meds built the wall that people have to protect them from that mine was so low that it just like that was just constantly washing over me and it built this wall up higher so that, like, I still have those problems. I still think about that stuff. You know, like, what do I do if I lose my brother all the time? But it's not as constant, and it's not it's not unremitting in the way that it used to be. And, like, you know, right. the, the wall just keeps, like, the ocean back. Um, right. But, yeah, it's not great. And it's not great, like, you know, for me, a lot of this stuff, obviously there's, like, I think an underlying problem that would be there no matter what my life was. But it's definitely, like, compounded, I think, like, a lot of people's is by stuff from my past, by, like, childhood and teenage years and, like, stuff that I don't even want to talk about because thinking about what the consequences if the person who did these things to me heard it is so scary that, I like, I can't. I can't bring it up. And the worst part about anxiety or one of the worst parts for me is that, like, I don't even know if that's reasonable. Like, I can't adequately interpret the possible ramifications of my actions sometimes because I'm so... But it's reasonable for you to feel whatever you're feeling. And, like, I just want to say that because Mm -hmm. I think it's really easy as someone with anxiety to, like, think, like, like second-guess everything that you're feeling all the time. But, But, like... Yeah. And it's, like, I mean, for me, like, dealing with, like, essentially, like, a sociopath very... Anyway, like, that makes it really hard to know... Um, what's real to begin with. And then you, like, add all this anxiety. Anyway, the point is, is that, like, I love logic. And, like, feeling like I, I can't logically interpret what's going on around me literally makes me more anxious. So there's, like, this crazy cycle, and it's terrible. It's terrible, yeah. y'all. Um, and anyway, I say all of this because I think it, it kind of brings us into something that I, I think we were going to try to talk about as well which is sort of the compounding issues around like mental illness and stuff that makes them Mm -hmm. worse. So the first thing that I I think 
we wanted to talk about is what I uh, had referred to as lady problems, but that's not accurate at all um, because I'm talking about like essentially domestic violence in various forms. So like mm-hmm. assault, rape, abuse, all of this happens to men. Um, it also happens to trans people, especially trans people of color, um, at a much higher rate than it happens to like cisgender women. Um, and uh, women of color, especially actually Native American women, are far more likely to experience this kind of violence than um, any other than other racial groups, but especially more so than white people. So all of that's important to keep in mind. But these problems, these experiences, um, all compound mental health problems. Um, if you are raped, even if you don't have, like, pre-existing, you know, serotonin imbalance, whatever, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. just going to give you PTSD or anxiety, you know? Like, but what if you already have that stuff? You know, <laughs> if you, if you sucks. like me, for example, spend probably, like, 40% of your mental energy on a good day, like, trying to convince yourself you're not, like the shit human who traumatized you when you were younger, if you're, that's what you do on your day-to-day life. Um, do you think that effort is going to work after you've been assaulted and the person who did it makes you think it was your fault? Um, you know, if your anxiety follows you everywhere, what happens if you add a new anxiety, which is that you could be attacked at literally any moment by somebody that you know? Um, do you guys... Our listeners, you know, do you know what it's like to fight for every breath, like, every moment you step outside your apartment? Because I do. And I've, like, tried to tell men on the left at times what that feels like and been laughed at. And so I just want all of y'all out there listening, like, to know that you guys better not be laughing now. And I say guys, like, very intentionally here. Because it's a Mm -hmm. serious issue uh, that I think people who haven't experienced it need to think a little bit harder about. So I have a question for you. What would be a helpful, supportive response? Or is there anything people could do or say that would make you feel better? Like in that situation or when you talk about it? Yeah, I mean, so like, I mean, so just as like an example um, you know, I, I guess I've kind of hinted at it. Like I've, I've dealt with, with assault, um, in like a professional context with somebody that I had to work with. And I have tried, you know, there, I've had an experience where I tried to talk to somebody who's, you know, within the same professional bubble and also like a DSA member and like another one of his DSA member buddies about like an adjacent issue about like a, um, a, a really sexist guy that I was, uh, an old man that I was working for and how he made like rape jokes. And I tried to explain like mm. how shitty that was. And these guys just started like laughing. Like they thought they were like, oh, it's so funny. This guy's like so out of touch. And it's like, well, you know, I certainly, and one of them knew. Like this is so fucking happened. common, dude. It like- happens all the time. And just being like, like if you don't have something, if I'm like, oh yeah, it was really shitty when this old man that I worked for said that women who get raped deserve it, essentially. Jesus fucking um, Christ. I want to hit somebody just hearing that. Like, if you if if you hear that, maybe don't be like, oh, that's crazy. I can't believe you said that. Like, listen to me, you know? Like, listen to what I'm saying and just be like, that, you know, that sucks. Um, especially if you're somebody that, like, you know, already knows what's happened, you know, that, like... But, like, any any person saying this to you, especially, like, any woman, any any transgender, like, anybody that's talking about how someone in a position of, of social power over them talked about what could easily be a an issue that brings up past trauma and is, like, this was a really, like, terrible moment. Like, maybe don't laugh at it. I feel like that's, like, a basic yeah. thing, but it happens all the time. <sighs> I think, like, this... It's it's so uh, I feel everything that you said so hard and having a really intense history with men myself, um, particularly with abuse. um, 
Like it, it's so hard to explain to people that every single interaction feels threatening and challenging, yeah. even if it's just walking down the street or even just sitting in a predominantly male DSA meeting, which mm-hmm. is just how it goes. And like to to try to explain to people that I already have my heckles raised, like I already am feeling alarmed and defensive just being in that space and that like if I you know potentially overreact to something or whatever it's it's frustrating because obviously like I am not trying to ever take out my anxieties on other people but it's so hard to explain to people like the automatic like nervousness and um like stress that you're under in these in these very common scenarios can I give just like a brief example that I feel like helps so like one of my best friends um from college I like knew him since like the first week of freshman year um recently like came into um town for work stuff and the two of us got together to grab a beer and I've known this guy forever um, and, like, really trust him. Like, it, it, there's no weirdness between us whatsoever. But because of what happened to me and because I think, I, honestly, I think I was drugged, um, I got, I met up with this guy that, you know, there's no, again, no presumption of ill will. When I got there, he had bought a beer for himself and a beer for me. And I just looked at it. And I felt like I was about to throw up. And I was like, mm. I don't know what to do. I know that I can't drink that beer. Like, I cannot drink this beer. Um, I can't, like, I literally just can't do it because right. I don't know what's going to happen to me. And that fear was so big that it overcame, like, you know, whatever it was, seven, eight years of goodwill that I had built mm. up with this friend. And so, like, mm. when women, when we feel unsafe, it's not an attack on you. Like, there's literally nothing this guy could have done differently to make me feel safe, you know? Like, and he also just did something really nice. He, like, bought a beer for me before I got to the bar. Um, And, you know, so, like, I literally was like, I was like, oh, are those the same beer or different ones? And he was like, oh, different ones. Like, I bought you, the one that he bought me had, like, the name Mermaid in it or something. And I was like, oh, well, you bought it. Like, why don't you try it first and then I'll try it. And then after he took a drink, I could drink it. But I couldn't do it before that. Right. And it, it's not it's not a comment on, like, an individual man if we don't feel safe. I mean, actually, it might be, like, if you're being aggressive and creepy <laughs> and weird. But, like, I think people have to understand that, like, women, so many of us have had these experiences. And it's it's not a joke. And it, it it's not a personal comment on you, necessarily. But it's something that you need to take seriously. Totally. Um, a red flag for me is that when people make like jokes about people being triggered, mm. um, like as someone with anxiety and PTSD and a history of sexual assault, like when I am feeling triggered, I don't need to apologize. I don't need to feel like I should double back and figure out a better way to explain what is happening with me to make you more comfortable or to make you take me more seriously. Um, Like triggered is the clinical term for what happens when someone or, you know, some stimulus induces like someone else's mental health symptoms or mental illness symptoms. Um, And so if someone makes a joke about someone being triggered, then I know at that point that I can't be vulnerable with them. I know that I can't, you know, I can't open up to them about my trauma history. I, and I know that if I do, then they'll think that what I've been through is a joke or is worth joking about. And I, that seriously limits a lot of relationships. Um, so just don't make trigger jokes. I mean, I know that y'all don't, but like to the audience, don't make trigger jokes. It's not funny. Like it is the clinical term for it. Yeah, just um, don't fucking do that. Yeah, you can, you can, you know, poke fun at people for being offended, or I guess. I don't know. Or, I'm still, yeah, like, I'm still kind of ambivalent <laughs> about that shit, too. Um, and it's, that's a yellow flag. But triggered, like, don't make trigger jokes. Big red flag. I think, like, the general thing is, like, listen to people when they're telling you <laughs> stuff. 
Like just listen to someone if they're like, <laughs> hey, I don't feel comfortable in this situation. Just be like, oh, okay. Don't be like, oh, well, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I just, I'm not going to like make something up. But like, just how about just listen? It would be great. It would be you so You have nice. two ears and one mouth for a reason. Speaking of which, I would love to listen to Hope right now. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so, yeah, as we were getting ready for this episode, I've been doing a lot of reflecting about this topic. And while I haven't particularly struggled with mental health issues myself, my mom really has. And the more I thought about it and reflected on her journey, the more I could see the role that economics has always played. So going back to her mom, my grandma, she had my mom super young at 17. She was a single mom. Um, She was raising her on her own. And so she had to get married in order to have enough money to support a child. So she married a guy who was not an ideal partner, um, kind of a shitbag, to be frank. And he ended up molesting my mom when she was a teenager. Um, And my grandma did not believe my mom when she told her that she'd been molested. Um, so, you know, in my mom's teenage years, they were pretty tumultuous. She had some problems with drugs a little bit. She was very rebellious. Um, but eventually, you know, kind of got herself together, met my dad and had kids. And then I think she had postpartum depression, probably that was undiagnosed. She had all of these hormonal changes and a husband who was largely, you know, unaware that this might be going on with her. So eventually she and my dad divorced. And she finds herself going from being, you know, pretty solidly middle class and having some, like, I would say kind of like light addiction, depression issues to having incredible economic instability. She increases her drinking, but she, you know, bought a condo post-divorce and was working. She got a DUI and was put on probation. And because she blew like trace amounts of alcohol while she was on probation, ended up going back to jail and losing her job, which caused her to cascade a series of events, causing her to lose her condo and increase, even more increased instability in her life to where then she was homeless. Mm. She lived in the woods for a while. And you have like all of this exacerbation of economic circumstances and then mental health issues to the point where like now she's finally gotten herself on disability and is finally able to receive some care but we saw firsthand how these economic circumstances really made it harder for her to have any kind of a foothold on her mental health state. That's really intense. And I think like you perfectly described a snowball mm-hmm. effect, yeah. you know, like this is what happens. I, you know, I used to work at a soup kitchen when I lived in Ithaca and my favorite part would be like going out and talking to people and the majority of people who received um food from this place had like phds from cornell university and lost everything because they got sick and couldn't pay for it and whether whether it was mentally sick or physically sick it did not like they just could not receive the care that they needed and ended up completely losing any sort of monetary stability that they were able to and have. for me you know i think through an understanding of socialism i have much more compassion for my mother than my brothers do mm. um i have two younger brothers and mm-hmm. they don't talk to her at all they think it's completely her fault she had addiction issues and that she should just like you know p- pick herself up mm. by her bootstraps and be a good citizen and i'm really able to look all the way back to her mother to see how hard it would be to be a single mother in the south in the 60s not making good money there was very limited jobs she could do and i think that sense of the economic framework actually helps me be a lot more compassionate about where she is absolutely definitely and also like i'm sure that it was also really hard on you. And that's another failing of the capitalist Mm -hmm. system is like when someone's really drowning in these sorts of snowball effects, like all of the family members that are closest to them or the people that are closest to them also Mm -hmm. suffer because there isn't support system for the supporters either. Um, (laughs) so to dive back into my, uh, mental illness history. Um, both of my hospitalizations had 
something to do with birth control. Um, for the first one, I was on Depo Provera, which is definitely labeled as like a depressant. Um, uh, I should also mention, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't, whatever. I'm going to mention that <laughs> I also <laughs> somehow managed to get pregnant while I was on Depo. And then I had a miscarriage without knowing that I was oh, pregnant. Um, yeah. Um, so I think it was partially like the hormones of, you know, the birth control and partially postpartum that led to my depressive episode being as deep as it was. Um, but I, I mean, I should have known beforehand not to take Depo because it is like, it is linked with depression. Um, the second time that I was hospitalized, um, I had an IUD and, um, it was, you know, it was Mirena. It had like the low dose hormones, but even that low dose of hormones affected me so badly. Like once I took it out, you know, my depression kind of my mental illness symptoms stabilized. Um, and this of course ties back into capitalism because all I was trying to do was not have a baby I couldn't afford. Um, and the only way that I could, you know, guarantee that aside from abstinence, which, you know, I was married, like I'm not going (laughs) to be abstinent within my marriage. Um, so the only way that I could make sure that I wasn't going to have a baby I couldn't afford was to take birth control. Um, and it like wrought havoc on my mental health mm. um, for I think just a long time. But yeah, go ahead. I, well, I was just going to say, I think this is like a classic thing that's specifically the United States is super shitty at. Like there's such a divide between mental and physical practitioners mm-hmm. within the United States that you don't even see in many European nations um, where the practitioners operate on completely different scales. And so the person who gave you Depovera should have been able to have access to your mental health files and oh, totally. be able to understand what was going on there and actually provide a, a birth control that works for you. Um, and... <laughs> I also just want to say, like, I think abstinence in general is a bad idea. <laughs> unless, <laughs> unless you're like, I don't want to have sex because I just don't want to personally. Mm-hmm. That's totally cool. But, like, if you're, like, I feel like societal pressures that usually are born mostly on women, like, the the, the pr- pressures to potentially be abstinent uh are never really a good idea, both for mental health and otherwise. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Also, speaking of healthcare in the United States, Mirena is contraindicated for depression in Canada. Um, But it does not have that labeling in the United States. Um, Yeah. It also, I don't know, like the cramps are just hell. And so sometimes I would have, like, PTSD symptoms because it, like, the cramps were so bad, they reminded me of my miscarriage. Um, yeah, so, like, I just, I can't fuck with birth control at this point. Although it is incredibly important to have access to birth control, it is so important to have access to all the information you need about the birth control that you're going to get on. Totally. Um, yeah. And also, like, <laughs> this is a, like, again, hammering at home, this is an issue that affects women primarily. Um, yeah. Like, f- because we're the ones that physically get pregnant, like, you know, cisgendered women, we're the ones that physically get pregnant. Why the, f- like, if, if we lived in an actually not patriarchal society, there would be men birth, con- there would be birth control for men. There would be, like, things that stop, like, semen from coming out or, like, whatever. Like, just fucking do something. And the fact that all of this is another, like, it's just... It's, our women are expected to, like, to mm-hmm. be the ones to bear the, the brunt of the difficulty that comes with, you know, controlling reproduction. And it amplifies the, it amplifies the economic precarity because mm-hmm. you not only are getting paid less, mostly, than men, you also have to pay for more things 
in your health care. You have to pay for more things. And it's constantly being threatened of being taken away from you. So there's like this amplifying feedback loop of having really financial instability or like generally more financial instability. And then also having far more things that need to be taken care of in terms of your physical health. Did y'all hear about this, like the clinical trials for the male birth control? Yes. I don't know. It came out last year. <laughs> they had like a third of the symptoms. It made guys like moody and bloated and like, <laughs> you know, a couple of them got depressed and I'm not minimizing depression at all, but like it had maybe a third of the symptoms that birth control available for um, people with ovaries, you know, had like a third of the number of symptoms of traditional birth control. And they're like, this is too many symptoms. We can't risk it. I think that men getting cramps is reparations. True. <laughs> Second that. <laughs> um, all right. Well, all jokes aside, I uh, I think it's probably about time for us to wrap up. So I wanted to let y'all know that you can reach us on Twitter at Season of the Bee. We are also on Instagram at Season of the Bee. Uh, send us your music at seasonofthebee at gmail.com <laughs> and uh, share your friends. Share your share friends. Your, <laughs> share your friends. I don't have enough. I really share don't. Your um, share this podcast <laughs> with your I friends because friend. uh, uh, let's support women in leftism, right? Yeah. Uh, oh. We're on Patreon. Yes. Give us money on Patreon, and as a final note, super exciting news, you may have seen this on Twitter or Facebook, we're doing a live show in Chicago! We're bringing everybody out, I'm so excited to see the coven in person, Uh, we are bringing on Tanya from the Trillbillies, it's gonna be November 4th in Chicago, Halloween themed, uh, the full moon that is closest to Halloween, it's a Saturday, Um, the audio is going to go live for the Patreon supporters, so if you've been waiting, now is the time, Uh, but we'd love even more to see you in person, this show is going to be epic. It will definitely be lit, 100%. Yes, so, uh, but for now, (laughs) we'll see you guys. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be lit. (laughs) 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 Um, If anybody's still listening, definitely come to the show. Yes, come to the show. We'll we'll see y'all next week. Um, we're gonna talk about how TAs and uh, graduate students in general are workers who are just totally screwed over um, and need to unionize. And uh, with that being said, guys, I think that's it. Okay, love you. Bye. All right, love, y'all. Bye. love you. Bye. Love you.